Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Welcome, dress listeners, and hello. Good morning, Cass. Good morning. Uh, morning. Yeah, we're recording bright and early this morning. But um, I would like to ask all of you, including you, Cass, to consider this scenario. It's your time for a trip to the dentist, which is a necessity of life. Certainly, few of us relish, and some of us, I think I would include myself in this, abhor. Oh, yeah. Not a fan. You're giving me anxiety just mentioning it, but go on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what if I told you that you could make your next visit not just pleasant, but potentially fabulous if you happen to share a tooth doc with the cultural critic and writer Louis Sebastian Mercier, who noted of a visit, quote, the dentist makes you sit down, lifts his lace ruffle, pulls your tooth with a well-dressed hand, and offers you a gargle. (laughs) Well, that took a surprising turn. (laughs) I think we all certainly expect our dentist to be wearing latex during our checkups, but lace, not so much. And while performing an extraction, never have I ever. That's pretty hilarious, actually, to consider. (laughs) Same. Well, the reason that we are unfamiliar with this scenario is probably because we did not live in 1783. And I'm just going to interject here, thankfully so, because there also didn't seem to be any mention of pain relief during this procedure. Yikes. Maybe the dentist was hoping that he could use his lace cuffs as a distraction technique. I don't know. (laughs) I'm joking, of course. But um, this little tidbit of the sartorial habits of a medical professional during the late 18th century really speaks to the wearing of lace as the very stuff of status. You know, it was historically embraced by both men and women alike for centuries. And as our guests today have written of lace's complex history, it is a, quote, handmade commodity signifying wealth, taste, and prestige of its wearer, end quote, while conversely, its painstaking making also reveals, quote, the unequal balance of power between those who design, sell, and wear lace and the lace makers themselves. From its late 15th century origins as an exclusive luxury product intended for the elite to its aspirational adoption by the middle and working classes and its 21st century computer-aided cousins, we should say, This week, we explore the complex history of lace as it twists and turns, wraps and binds together themes of social status, international trade and commerce, the evolution of technology, and so much more. Today, we are joined by Michelle Major and Emma Cormick, co-curators of the exhibition Threads of Power, Lace from the Textile Museum of St. Gallen, which recently opened at the Bard Graduate Center in New York City. The exhibition runs through January 1st of 2023 and features more than 150 extant examples of lace and also approximately 125 contextualizing objects, including paintings, prints, books, tools of the trade, and garments, of course, featuring lace. All of this to trace the history of European lace from the late 15th century to the present. Michelle and Emma have been working for over two years to bring us this exhibition of lace 
from the collection of the Textile Museum in St. Gallen in Switzerland, working with Ilona Koss, the Textile Museum's curator of collections and exhibitions. Michelle is a professor emerita at the Bard Graduate Center and a research associate at Cora Ginsberg, one of the world's preeminent dealers of historic dress and textiles. And Emma currently serves as the associate curator at the Bard Graduate Center, where she also is part of the curatorial team who brought us French fashion, women, and the First World War, which we have, of course, spoken about on the show in the past. Michelle, Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. Ladies, a very warm welcome to Dress. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Well, first of all, I want to wish you both very, very sincere congratulations on the exhibition. It is truly a tour de force because not only is it comprehensive, it's also very copious. Um, (laughs) Ultimately, it spans all four floors of the Bard Graduate Center Gallery spaces. And I told Emma when we chatted at the preview, I was like, all of the labor that went into just the mounting and the installation alone is staggering. And that's not even mentioning, of course, all the curatorial work, the exhibition catalog, and then we come to the lace itself. So I'm going to venture to guess that this exhibition is probably going to make the top of a lot of people's favorite shows um, in recent years. So first question I want to ask you is, how did the show come to be? So this show came to be um, many years ago. BGC's director and founder, Susan Weber, was in St. Gallen in Switzerland, and she was visiting the Textile Museum St. Gallen with her very close friend, Tobias Forster, who happens to be the president of the museum. And the museum, they were busy preparing for their 2018-2019 exhibition about their historic lace collection, which is the exhibition this show is based on. And Susan saw the, the objects sort of lying around in the workrooms, and she said, we have to have this in New York. So immediately she was struck by how beautiful and intricate and really stunning they are and um, said, we, we have to bring it to New York. And it's been 40 years since the last lace exhibition in New York. And uh, here we are. Oh, that's amazing. Where, just out of curiosity, where and when was the last lace exhibition that you referred to? Uh, it was at the Cooper Hewitt in um, 1982-83. Oh, wow. That's, it's, it's, it's well overdue. It's very timely. <laughs> yes. And there have been, there have been, I should say, there have been smaller installations at various institutions in the city and sort of in the region, but the, this is the first uh, really large scale uh, installation since then, which we're really excited about. Yeah. So the first question, the next question that I want to ask you might be one that is deceptively simple, but also <laughs> at the same time, kind of like mind-bogglingly complex. At its most elemental, the subject of this exhibition is, of course, lace. What is lace? Because I think that most people know it when they see it, but they might not actually be able to answer that question or explain what lace is. So this is something that we dealt with right from the beginning. It was how are we going to define lace? And I'll say that in the, say in the context of this question, you know, and, and the exhibition, we were dealing with lace in Europe, lace made in Europe, right? So, mm-hmm. but in terms of our research, we relied heavily on Santina Levy's book, uh, Lace, a History, which is sort of like the lace Bible for um, scholars of this um, textile. And um, I think, you know, very early on in her, in the introduction, she defines lace as you know, textile characterized by 
essentially open areas. So that can incorporate, you know, open work, um, things like crochet. Mm-hmm. So, so not strictly lace um, as, as we see it in the exhibition. Um, and of course, lace-like textiles were made long prior to the emergence of lace in Europe in the 16th century and across the globe. But in the exhibition, we really focus on the emergence of needle and bobbin lace in Europe in the mid-16th century. Mm -hmm. And the first floor of the exhibition begins with an exploration of the two main lace-making techniques used for handmade lace that you just mentioned, needle lace and bobbin lace. I was hoping one of you might give us kind of like a brief summary of what those terms mean. So needle lace, like you said, we focus on needle and bobbin lace as the two handmade lacing lace techniques in the exhibition. So needle lace, which emerges from embroidery techniques, is similarly made with a single needle and thread. It's built up over a parchment base with a series of outlining threads um, connecting it to that base. And then the lace maker stitches between those threads using primarily buttonhole stitch, creating the motifs, but not piercing the parchment again with those stitches. And then finally, once she's finished with the whole piece, she cuts away those first outline stitches and releases the piece from its parchment backing. And then bobbin lace, like needle lace, is built up also over a parchment pattern, but this parchment pattern is pinned to a curved surface of a hard pillow. And the design is marked by a series of pricked holes, some of which are sort of linked by drawn lines for guidance in terms of creating the pattern, pins, trace those lines um, and mark the stitches that the lace maker creates. And instead of buttonhole stitches where you're, you're knotting, bobbin lace is twisting threads, plating threads, and sort of Elena Kennedy-Laux, who's our, our wonderful contemporary lace maker who we commissioned a piece from for the beginning of the exhibition. She, the other day, described it as sort of freehand weaving. Um, so you use threads wound around these bobbins and sort of weave things together and put the pins in to create the structure for the pattern. Yeah, and Elaine is actually going to be joining us very soon on an upcoming episode. Right. <laughs> so we'll hear more from her. So I'm hoping that, uh, Michelle, you mentioned the 16th century already, but um, I'm hoping we can delve a little bit further into Lace's kind of early history in Europe when and where do we first see what we now generally agree to be lace emerge as a unique form of handcraft? So the early centers of lace making are primarily the Italian peninsula, um, particularly Venice, and also the southern Netherlands, uh, particularly Antwerp. Those are two centers that um, a number of our authors discuss in the book. And so those are the, I'd say those are the two most important centers in the later 16th and early 17th centuries. And then in the mid 17th century, you have the establishment of the French lace industry under Louis XIV and Colbert, um, which begins to rival these other centers. And then in France, you have cities like or towns like Alençon, Argentan, Valenciennes, which becomes a part of France um, after 1678. So those are all well-known French um, lace-making centers. And although whatever type of lace was in fashion at any given moment, that is needle or bobbin, the other technique imitates in order to, you know, (laughs) cash in on whatever's fashionable. 
something of a place like Venice, right, is known for a lace called Point de Venise, um, which becomes highly fashionable in the mid 17th century um, and is characterized by this very robust three-dimensional appearance with scrolling leaves and flowers mm-hmm. and Flemish bobbin lace. Um, so yeah, Flanders is primarily known for, or the Southern Netherlands primarily for, for bobbin lace. Um, they had exceptionally fine threads due to the quality of the linen that was grown there. Um, and they are mostly known for um, bobbin laces. The French, for instance, when the industry is established in uh, 1665, they're initially imitating the Italian lace, the Point de Venise, but within a couple of decades, they've developed their own aesthetic, which is quite different. It's lighter, more delicate. It's still three-dimensional, but it's not as sculptural as the Point de Venise. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has a very different feeling to it. But also I should say that, and this is part of the you know, identification of lace, which is really difficult, is that Alençon lace, which has certain characteristics, was made elsewhere. So, you know, it might be made in the style of Alençon lace in a different part of France. I'm going to venture to guess that a part of that might have to do with pattern books, which I'm going to ask you about here in a few minutes, I think. But first, I want to talk about the exhibition's title, because I found this very interesting as you pull it apart, I guess that is a little bit of a pun, um, (laughs) in the exhibition catalog, because, you know, as a full-blown industry at this point now in the 17th century, you know, the lace trade obviously depended on both consumers and the creators for its very existence. And the relationship between the makers and the sellers and the buyers is all alluded to in the exhibition's title, which is, of course, Threads of Power. So I'm hoping that you could tease this out a little bit for us, particularly in the use of the word power in the title. Sure. Yeah. So this is something we also talked about from the very beginning, which is the two sort of sides that we can approach this topic from. The more sort of historically visible side where you see the wearers of lace, these very high status men and women of the 16th, 17th, 18th century wearing large scale, very expensive lace accessories and trimmings in in surviving portraiture. And then there's the other, the sort of the other side of it, which is the invisible lace makers who worked, of course, for many hours and months and years on those objects, but very little information survives about their lives or their work. So we wanted to bring that out in the exhibition as much as possible. So on the first two floors, we have interspersed in the gallery, reproductions of paintings of lace makers. And you see that most of those paintings that survive are, are sort of genre paintings. They're not portraits of named lace makers. Um, and that in itself is a, a contrast to the portraiture you see of, for example, the Infanta Isabella, these very, very powerful people who not only had access to purchase and wear this lace, but to have their portraits painted. So we wanted to evoke that um, contrast in the title and keep the lace makers and their invisible, underpaid, overworked labor at the forefront of people's minds as they go through the exhibition. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I really loved about the exhibition so much was the inclusion of those prints, engravings, and the portraits that, you know, oftentimes they're placed next to a very specific case 
holding an extant piece of lace, you know, that is similar to the item in the artwork itself. So I think that was really interesting. And I think there's a lot to learn from images and from art history in terms of the social significance of wearing lace at the time. Do you, do you have any thoughts that you'd like to interject on that? So at its sort of most basic, lace is, of course, an extremely, extremely expensive textile. So having large collars made from lengths of lace was a signifier that you had access to that extreme wealth and that you could commission something of that um, of that sort. So that's, I guess, where we started with the exhibition is that's where you see examples of what these pieces of lace looked like in the 16th, 17th, 18th century. So we, like you said, I'm glad that you noticed we tried to pair them with the, the matching pieces in the case yeah. because so often, too, you see surviving lace is no longer on its understructure that created those big collars. It's, it's laid flat in exhibitions and in collection storage. So we, we wanted to, to emphasize how these pieces were worn on the body and how they interacted with fashions of the period. Yeah, the example of the ruff that's on the first floor, I think that's on the first floor, yeah, blew my mind. I took photos of it and sent it to a friend of mine who's a fashion designer immediately being like, this is mind-boggling because I never really realized in the rough itself that the lace was going up and down through the curvature, meaning that it had to be all that much longer. Mm -hmm. And then I think in the specific portrait that you selected to show He's not only wearing run one ruff, but I think it's like a double layer ruff. I mean, it's extraordinary. And the cuffs too. Yeah, it it's really mind boggling. Yeah, and it's. I mean, it's it's a totally impractical, non utilitarian textile. Mm-hmm. And completely made from hand. Let's not forget this mm-hmm. at this point. We've touched on very briefly that it's um, a symbol of power. So it's it's no surprise then that we see a profusion of lace worn at European courts during the uh, 17th and 18th centuries especially. And I say that, or I would argue that some of the most striking, visually striking examples of how lace was worn was at the Spanish court. So how did uh, lace factor into Spanish court style specifically? So the emergence of lace in the second half of the uh, 16th century coincides with Spain's dominance um, among the European powers um, in terms of its economic wealth, um, its um, empire, its its reach. Uh, So the Spaniards were very enthusiastic consumers of this expensive textile. Mm-hmm. Lace was made in Spain, but the industry there was never um, like those in Northern Europe. So from the beginning, they're uh, you know acquiring and and wearing the the note the, the royalty and aristocracy are acquiring wearing lace from Flanders. And you know there's there was another thing like do we call this area uh, where this lace was made? Do we call it Southern Netherlands, the Spanish Netherlands, yeah. the Low Country? Low countries, um, and of course, there was this right. You know, Spain was present in the southern Netherlands, so they had access to lace from there. Um, and certainly, when uh, in the mid 17th century, when Pointe-de-Venise becomes the most desirable and the most expensive kind of lace, um, they're also using that. And one of our authors who talks about 
place at the Spanish court um, emphasizes the preference for black um, that you see, particularly in the, um, well, in the late 16th and 17th centuries by Spanish courtiers. And so visually, the white lace against a black garment makes a very profound visual statement. Yes. Um, and shows off the lace that you're wearing, um, the amount of lace, the detail of the lace. Um, and and in, in the same chapter, um, the author talks about, we haven't really um, brought this up, but um, the sumptuary laws that were passed um, that attempted to prohibit the wearing of lace by, correct me if I'm wrong, Emma, I mean, basically people other than the, you know, royalty and the aristocracy. So there is this attempt to um, to limit, right, who has access to this textile. But um, as she also makes the point in, in her chapter, um, Amalia Descalzo, that, you know, basically anybody who could afford lace managed to f- circumvent or flout these sumptuary laws um, and, and buy lace and, and also have themselves painted in lace. Mm-hmm. So um, the sumptuary laws for lace, like other kinds of textiles, you know, from the medieval period onward were essentially ineffective. Yeah, I I think that's fascinating. Where there is a will, there is a way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you have money, you can find a way to buy what is prohibited. So somebody or a selection of individuals who seem to have been exempt from the sumptuary laws were perhaps members of the clergy because lace makes an appearance not in just court style, but also ecclesiastical style. What was the church's relationship with acquiring and owning lace during these periods? And and how was it worn and or displayed? Because it wasn't always necessarily worn. And what was the end purpose of that display? So with lace, I mean, like with like other luxury textiles, the church was always an important consumer of these materials. They were a demonstration, like, like at the royal courts. I mean, they were a demonstration of wealth and status and, uh, and glorification of the church itself. So the idea is, you know, when you went into, when you went to mass, you know, and you would see the officiating clergy, you know, in this resplendent, Attire that comprised, you know, a coat or an, you know, an alb or these uh, chasuble, these um, you know, ecclesiastical vestments, um, that you would be impressed by by the wealth of the church and the power of the church. So they, the, the the church used these kinds of textiles very much in the same way that the royal courts did. Mm-hmm. And the church acquired lace on its own, as it were, but also. Again, lace, you know, like other textiles, many uh, wealthy patrons donated woven textiles and lace to the church. So that was one way that they acquired this material um, that, again, would be incorporated into vestments or textiles used in the mass itself. So actually, one of the pieces that we have on display, this enormous gold antipendium or altar frontal, it could be the hem or, you know, border for an alb, um, which is generally a linen vestment worn by a priest. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the size of it is quite impressive. So the alb must, I mean, the hem of the alb must have been enormous if that was the case. But again, this is another way that you see it both worn on the, on the body of the clergy or within the, you know, on the altar. And a lot of these pieces that were owned 
acquired or donated to the church, the motifs and the symbolism that are incorporated into the lace itself are usually kind of, or they're biblical references often. Yes, sometimes it's very, and that's sometimes that's one way that you can tell that the lace was made for the church because it has these symbols or um, other kind of iconography Mm -hmm. that relates it to, um, you know, for religious use. But I think as uh, Ilana makes the point in her label for the for the chasuble that's on display, the Pandavanese chasuble, the motifs themselves, which are essentially floral, um, do not necessarily convey any religious symbolism. But the color of the, the now somewhat faded salmon silk layer underneath that might have been more, that was probably stronger it may be, um, you know, would connect it to, to the church because of the reddish sort of crimson color right. um, is very much associated with the church. But also there are some cases where we might find a piece of lace with uh, religious iconography or symbolism and th- that was essentially used for a private chapel. So not within, you know, a church to which the public, you know, where the public attended mass or the, the locals in the parish attended mass but was for really private religious consumption. Interesting. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I kind of learned a little bit about this when I was in grad school, but the exhibition touches on it. And then of course it goes, you go further into this in the exhibition catalog. But I think that some of our listeners might be a little surprised to learn that many religious institutions had a vested interest in the production of lace. How was lace making fostered in convents and other religious charitable homes or institutions? So like Michelle mentioned earlier, I think um, originally you see lace-making techniques and developments made by um, noble women working at home. But once there's greater demand for this type of luxury textile, you see that convents and charitable institutions and religious institutions get involved in the production to keep up with the growing consumer base for for lace. Um, So these institutions, which house young women and girls, taught uh, the women to make lace from a very young age. Um, And you see that a recurring sort of refrain from the founders and proponents of these institutions and also from social commentators is that lace making taught these women a useful skill, providing them with a source of income, and it also kept them from falling into idleness and vice and immoral lifestyles. So as you can imagine, though, uh, this leads to very unequal balances of power, and you see that these women are sort of locked away in convents. Some of them entered against their will because their families couldn't support however many daughters they had. Um, And you see that they essentially live out their lives making this textile for wealthy patrons. And they have no say in what they're paid for their work. Um, They work through intermediaries and other middlemen for merchants who ultimately decide what they're paid. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and if we haven't already driven home this point that overwhelmingly the majority of lace makers during um, these time periods that we're talking about, the late 16th century, 17th, and 18th centuries, most of them were women. Mm-hmm. So why specifically, and I think you've kind of alluded to this already, why was the making of lace so heavily skewed with female makers? And what role did gender play in the industry at large? 
So like I mentioned, they were largely women. Um, and I think it really has roots in this history of women working in textile trades and particularly in those textile trades that are relied on the home industry. So lace makers, the ones who were actually making the lace, they were women, the middlemen or intermediaries who would commission the lace from these women and could provide materials and patterns um, could either be women or men, those women who might've been lace makers and, and uh, moved up in the lace world to become an intermediary. And then the merchants who sold the finished pieces of lace and profited off of them were largely men. Mm. So that again is where you see this unequal balance where the women are not properly paid for their labor and someone else is profiting off of their life's work. Mm-hmm. They, they, weren't, they weren't in on that bargaining conversation in terms of setting their rates of pay. No. One little fascinating detail that I did learn from the exhibition catalog was that um, sometimes portions if for the female lace makers working in convents or other religious institutions, a small portion of their pay was sometimes set aside for their dowries. That was quite interesting mm-hmm. to learn. <laughs> so, you know, handmade lace was such an important element to European fashion for so long now. We're talking centuries. Obviously, the know-how had to be handed down from generation to generation. Could one of you speak a little bit about the history of education in the trade and how did lace makers learn the art form or craft? Uh, So in some cases, uh, young girls could learn from their mothers or other female relatives or female lace makers living in their village or their town. But they also might learn, as Emma was saying, if they were sent to a charitable institution um, or, you know, in a convent, but there certainly were um, lace-making schools. Um, mm. Definitely in the, you know, the 19th century, you have the establishment of uh, lace-making schools, both in, we know them, I mean, in, in Britain, right, Emma, and, and in, in Belgium, which became a well-known center of, uh, I mean, it had been since, you know, in, in the, 17th, 18th centuries, but going into the 19th century. And so you have lace-making schools there. You have lace-making schools in, in France. And uh, Leslie Miller, one of the, our authors, um, talks about young women um, apprenticed, who'd be apprenticed to lace-makers in the 18th. This is, she talks about lace in the 18th century for a number of years, starting from a very young age until they were fairly proficient um, and then might go on um, after the apprenticeship to continue learning under, you know, skilled mistresses or lace makers um, un- until they could really work sort of on their own, as it were. So in the gallery that focuses on Bourbon, France, uh, we have an interactive called the, the Lives of Lace Makers. The interactives were put together by students who took a course that Emma and I essentially co-taught last fall. And we gave them, we knew that there were certain areas of the exhibition that needed expanding because they weren't fully presented in the galleries in terms of objects. So one of these areas was essentially like, you know, what were the lives of these women? So the students using both primary and secondary sources uh, created three fictional lace makers, an Italian woman in the 17th century working in a a Venetian convent, the young um, French woman working in Valenciennes, in the sort of middle of the 18th century, and a young English woman working in the Midlands, um, also, also in the, the late 18th century. 
So with each of these interactives, you can click on their daily life, their education, um, the kinds of tools they use, their community. Um, so you can get a sense of where they learned. Um, and um, I think so that the, the young Italian woman learns in the convent. She's shipped off to a convent because she's not marriageable. You know, her older sister gets to get married, but she, she ends up in the convent. The young French woman learns, I forget if she learns in a, from other lace makers, mm-hmm. right? In the mm-hmm. school, maybe. And then the British, the young English woman learns from women around her in her, in her particular village or town. Mm-hmm. Nottingham. And again, these, these sort of fictionalized lives of these three young women are meant to, to remind people that there were girls behind these objects and to, to give a visual, um, a visual reminder of the lives and tools they would have used and to, to keep that in people's minds while they walk through. If I can jump to the late or later 19th century, when you have this awareness that, um, you know, with the mechanization of lace that competes with handmade lace, and there are many social commentators and, of course, people in the lace-making industry, the handmade lace industry, who are intent on, on maintaining this form of lace-making, right? And um, in uh, Emma's and my chapter, there's a quote from somebody called Charles Blanc from 1874, and he talks about going into, you know, small villages in rural France and seeing these young girls, you know, bent over their cushions, you know, all day long with their bobbins um, and, and this toil, right, that they are doing every single day, you know, for hours on end, essentially to make a wealthy young woman look good. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of saying, you know, is this actually fair? You know, is this, you know, what do we think about this? That mm-hmm. there, there's this whole class of young women whose entire lives are spent at basically at the service of wealthier young women. Yeah. And and there's a physicality to that as well, right? You know, you're you're referencing we we think about it now like being on your computer all the time. This is even finer work that it requires a high level of dexterity and also like keen eyesight as well because these patterns are teeny tiny um, in certain cases. So there's there's probably a, a a physical sacrifice that's being made on part of the lace makers as well. And it's really this is a, an anecdote that we tell I think everyone we meet. But Elena Kanagilaks, who again is our our wonderful lace maker colleague who made the piece for the introduction to the exhibition. She told us long ago that um, in speaking about how lace making is such an embodied skill, that when she's working at her lace pillow making a piece of bobbin lace, um, eventually when she sort of gets into a groove with working with the pattern, she can feel in her hands when she's made a mistake before she can see that mistake with her eyes. Interesting. So you can imagine that if you are an 80-year-old lace maker who's been making lace for 70 years, that it really would be this, this very physical work and um, that it's really... It's, yeah, it's, it's embodied in its muscle memory. It's Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. I, I want to touch back on something that I mentioned very briefly earlier. Um, and both of you had used the term tools or tools of the trade. And surely one of those were the lace pattern books that were used. 
What role did pattern books play in the dissemination of particular styles of lace? So we have several lace pattern books on display in the exhibition, um, all three from the the Mets collection, um, Prints and Drawings. And it's a, a genre of book that you see emerge in about the 1520s in Central Europe. And you can rely on these printed sources to, to sort of trace the, the evolution of lace motifs and, and, um, and styles, as you mentioned. So these, interestingly, these pattern books, they just contain, for the most part, they just contain the, the pattern plates. They don't necessarily have instructions on how to create these pieces. So that sort of suggests that the readers of these books had uh, inherent knowledge that they didn't need a page of the book that says, you know, to create this point over here, you do four buttonhole stitches this way. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't have those very detailed instructions. Um, but occasionally you do see in pattern books information on how to transfer the patterns to either a parchment backing or some other form of um, a substrate. So for example, you could trace the, a lace maker could trace the pattern in the pattern book onto a piece of parchment, or they could rip the page out and prick holes in it and mm-hmm. um, rub a fine powder over it to create the, the markings for where the pins would eventually go. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually one pattern book that our author Paula Hoti talks about in her chapter is um, an example of a drawing in a pattern book showing how to enlarge or reduce a particular lace pattern that's in a book. So they have instructions on how to get the patterns out of the book, but not necessarily how to create them in lace. That's interesting. I guess there's a similar parallel there to be had with cookbooks Mm -hmm. or recipe books from the same time period. It's like, it may tell you a list of ingredients, but it's not giving you the order of operations. Yes, yes, totally. (laughs) Emma, Michelle, thank you so much for this initial look into your exhibition, Threads of Power, Lace from the Textile Museum, St. Gallen. And we say initial because many of our listeners have probably noted from this title that this is another two-part episode. And Thursday, we will pick up our discussion with the technological innovations which made machine-made lace possible during the mid-19th century and trace lace's winding path up to the present day. Until then, dress listeners, may you ponder why not wear lace and incorporate a little flounce into your outfit next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so via email at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. If you'd like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate it. Just like we appreciate our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday with more Lace. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.